Thanks, Andy. Uh, thanks, Kathy, for bringing us. Uh, it's, it's funny, isn't it? We've just read the whole book of the Bible. That's a pretty big effort, isn't it? And now I'm going to expect you to listen while I talk to you about what it means. But hopefully having the story together will mean that you've got a much better chance of making sense of what it is that's actually going on uh, in the story here tonight. So I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would help us. Uh, so let's do that now. Dear God, thank you so much for the story of Jonah. I pray that you would help us to move from the kids' story Bible uh, into the reality of what this story means. And I pray, Father, that in doing so, we might meet you, the gracious and compassionate God. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, be at work here tonight, speaking to us, challenging us, and changing us to be more like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, well, we're doing a series called On Mission with God in the Old Testament. And we've looked at a variety of different books, but tonight I want us to have a look at Jonah. And we're going to do it uh, by looking at each chapter in turn. So one chapter at a time. It'll be really helpful if you have uh, the Bible open in front of you. And uh, for each chapter, I'm going to give you a question to think about. I'm going to tell you a little bit of history or something to give you the reality of the story. And then we're going to think through some of the key points uh, in each chapter. The... Um, the question I want us to start with uh, tonight is, I wish God would make himself clearer. Or the statement, I, I wish God would make himself clearer. Has anyone thought this before? I wish God would make himself clearer. So, God, I'm not sure what to do with my life. I'm not sure where I'm going. I would just love you to tell me exactly what you would like me to do. Has anyone had that thought? God, make yourself clearer and everything would be fine. Um, I actually think this is a really dangerous wish. Because the problem is, what if God told you? What if God told you exactly what he wanted you to do? And that's what we see in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Have a look with me at a man who has God say exactly what he wants him to do. Uh, so in Jonah chapter 1, uh, 1 to 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Very clear, Yes. Yes. And this is verse 3, Jonah's response. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And we're like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't we want God to be really clear? And here's God being very clear. And Jonah's response is, yes, God, I got exactly what you said. And I don't want to do it. So what's he do? He starts running. He starts running away from God. Well, let's... Uh, Let's see where this fits into our timeline, the book of Jonah. This is our Bible timeline. It goes from the Old Testament up to the New Testament. We're up here. The book of Jonah fits in about here during the period of the kings. And we can find that out. Jonah actually appears outside the book of Jonah in a book called Two Kings, where we see him talking to a brand new king, Jeroboam II. And there it says, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Which we all kind of go, wow, that's not really the most exciting thing I've ever heard. The point is, right, the point is, I think we have Jonah as a story with, I said this morning, the smiling whale in it. Do, do you know what I mean? So in our kids' Bibles, it's a smiling whale, and it's so disconnected from the reality that you and I live in that we kind of think it's just a fairy tale. The point of making sure that you see that Jonah occurs in two kings is to say that the king they're speaking about, Jeroboam II, we know lived between, or lived, reigned between 780 and 750 BC. 
It actually tells us a time in real history where Jonah must have been alive. Okay? That's actually quite helpful to know. Jonah was a real person. He spoke to real kings in real time and real history. And what about these places? Well, well where is these, these places? Well, there's Jerusalem in modern-day Israel. Uh, here's Nineveh, kind of in northern Iraq or, or southeastern Turkey. Uh, Jonah went to a place called Joppa, which is by the sea, about there, and he was trying to get to Tarshish. And, of course, you all know where Tarshish is, don't you? Who knows where Tarshish is? But Tarshish, we speculate, was in Spain. Now, the Israelites hated boats and they hated the ocean. And so if you're saying, I'm going to Tarshish, essentially what you're saying is, I'm going to the end of the world to get away from you, God. Okay? I'm not even convinced that Jonah actually wanted to get to Tarshish. I think he just wanted to run away as far as he could. And he got a ticket to as far away as possible. And as far away as possible was Tarshish. Okay? Come in a little bit closer and we'll see Jonah's journey. He started in Joppa. was swallowed by a large fish. That's chapters 1 and 2. Spat out on the beach. And then he went from wherever he landed across to the city of Nineveh in chapters 3 and 4. That's the geography. And what about these people, the people of Nineveh? Well, they're part of the Assyrian Empire and they were terrible. Now, there are kids present. So I'm going to be very careful what I tell you. Can you see these large sticks here? This is a carving on the wall of the city of Nineveh, okay? Can you see the sticks? Can you see what's on top of the sticks? No, nope. they're humans. They've been stuck onto the sticks and lifted up. These guys were appallingly evil. They were very powerful, the most powerful kingdom at their time, and they were incredibly nasty people. Here's how a prophet who was speaking later, a guy called Nahum, said, he, he was saying that one day Assyria is going to crumble and he was announcing God's judgment on them. Uh, here's what he says. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Here's the potted summary. One day Assyria is going to fall. And when it does, all the people of the world are going to be celebrating the fall because the whole world has been touched by their endless cruelty. These are not nice people. So let's pick the story up, have a look what it says in Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 1 and verse 2. God says to him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Here's the thing. God sees wickedness and he won't let it go unchallenged forever. God will judge it. Now that's the, all the things that we like to hear about God, isn't it? I think at some level we want a really loving God, the, the God who will give us a hug when we're crying, and he will, but here's the thing. The God who is really there provides something else that we long for. When things are truly, profoundly evil, the God who is greater than that evil will one day bring it to account. Their wickedness came up before them, before him, and one day God will judge sin. So I look at the disaster that is Syria today, Yeah? It's funny, it's the Assyrian Empire that we're talking about. We look at Syria today, and I think it is, it's appalling evil, isn't it? It's just a mess, and I don't think anyone can solve it at the moment. When I look at that disaster, I think it is not right that children die. It is not right that people are beaten and tortured. That is not right. 
But one day God, who sees all, will bring it to account. And I need there to be a God of justice. And what Jonah tells us is God will deal justly, which is encouraging, I think. But Jonah doesn't want, Jonah doesn't want to go to Tarshish, uh, to, to, um, to Nineveh. And I think the reason he doesn't want to go to Nineveh is I suspect he's a little bit afraid. Why would you want to go and see the most evil people in the world and wander in with a message from God that says you're going to be judged? Who wants that job, right? I'll put my bulletproof vest on and my helmet and I might wander to the outside and hide up a sign and say, it's going to be bad here for you guys. But God says, I want you to go to the city and I want you to proclaim its destruction. Who wants the job? Jonah says, not me. I am out of here. And I think that makes sense given who they are. Anyway, Jonah ends up on the boat, as you saw, and uh, there's a massive storm because Jonah's running away. And what it says is they cast lots. Does anyone know what that is? Casting lots? Casting lots is like drawing straws. Does anyone know what that means? Yeah? So you know you've got the different length straws? If we ask you to pick one and you pick out the short one, we go, ah, it's your fault. And so what they did is they drew straws and they said, whose God is responsible for this terrible storm? And the lot fell to Jonah. He said, Jonah, it's your fault. And they, tell, they ask him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? I love it. Jonah's under, uh, under pressure. Jonah, give us your bio. What work do you do? Where do you come from? And what have you done? It's, uh, I said this morning, it's like a party question on steroids. You know the bit where you're having a drink, you're having a chat with someone? Oh, yeah, what do you do? Yeah, where do you come from? But they're going, we're about to die here. What do you do? Where do you come from? Who's your God? Jonah is under the pump. And what he says is quite extraordinary. Have a look with me at verse 9. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. How much was God responsible for making? What did God, you, you guys are listening, I know. He made the what? Heavens. He made the... And he made the dry land. So if he made the heavens, the sea, and the dry land, how successful is running away from him going to be? It's not going to work out very well, is it? And so Jonah says, I'm, the God, I'm with the God who made everything, and I'm running away from him. And it says at that point that they were terrified. Well, what are you doing then, dude? I think that's the translation from ancient Hebrew. What are you doing, dude? Uh, you can see that in verse 10. What have you done? And he says, well, I was running away. But, but he says, look, I know what you can do. You can throw me overboard and everything will be right for you. Um, I said this morning, one of the things that catches my attention is I don't think God told him to say, throw me overboard. I think Jonah is so set on not going to Nineveh that he says, chuck me overboard because that way I'll never have to go. Okay, it'll be all right for you guys. Just kill me, throw me overboard. And they throw him overboard. Notice they pray before they throw him overboard. Lord, don't hold us accountable. We're just doing this thing in order to save our lives. Please forgive us. Chuck. Chucked him overboard and everything's totally still and quiet. And they go, wow, now they are totally terrified. Have a look at verse 16 there. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What we have here is people who aren't Jews. Gentiles who on this boat at the start of this story have started worshipping the true God. It's pretty good, isn't it? Talking about God on mission in the Old Testament, Jonah has already been successful. He just converted a boatload full of Gentiles. 
What did it take? Him getting thrown overboard. (laughs) Quite extraordinary, I think. So here's the thing. I think we say to ourselves, I wish God would make himself clearer. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. It wasn't a tip. It wasn't a piece of advice. It was a command from Jesus. Do you know who it was to? Oh, that was a good answer. What was it? Great answer, Decky. It was to everyone, everyone here who calls Jesus their Lord. He commanded us to go and make disciples. Has Jesus been clear? <laughs> I love the feedback I'm getting at, uh, at night. Here's the thing. Was Jesus clear, adults? Yeah. All right. So you want Jesus to be clear, don't you? So he was clear. Here's my question to you. Here's my question to you. How are you running to avoid giving the message of new life? How is it that you and I run from our opportunities to tell people about the good news of Jesus? He's been clear. It's on our agenda. He's commanded us. And you and I, how good are we at doing this? We're not so great at it, are we? God, I want you to be really clear. He's been command clear, and we're saying, I'm running away. Please don't make me do it. That's worth thinking about, isn't it? The next uh, chapter, chapter two, here's my question for that. Uh, Has anyone had this experience? You're totally under the pump, under pressure, maybe relationally. Maybe you're under pressure at work. Maybe you've got an assignment due in, and there's no time left. And you find yourself, I think this is the moment. Should I do it? I'll do it. Um, Where you find yourself, oh, oh. Have you done a prayer where you've been flat on your face? Anyone? Have you been in a situation that's been so desperate that you've done one of these things? God, if you save me, then I'll... If you save me from this terrible situation I'm in, if you save me, then I will... Dot, dot, dot. Do you know that feeling? Some of you do. If you're a kid and you're here today, one day you'll end up on your face and you'll make a prayer like that, I reckon. I reckon it's part of human nature. We realize that we're at the end of our own resources and we call out to God and we go, God, if you save me, I'm out of control here. If you save me, I will do. All right. Well, that's exactly what Jonah did. Have a look at chapter 2 in verse 7. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. I want you to observe this, guys. Can you see that thing there? Has anyone heard of a basking shark before? Oh, you boys have. Fantastic. Well done. Well, I have not. It's large, isn't it? Apparently up to 20 feet long. I just Googled, show me the largest fish in the Mediterranean, and this came up. Okay, basking shark. Uh, How wonderful. You can see the size of the guy there. Now, I'm going to tell you, it was exactly a basking shark that swallowed Jonah. I don't know. Was it a sperm whale? I don't know. Was it a large sunfish? I don't know. Do you know what? The Bible doesn't tell me. It just says a large fish swallowed Jonah. And and you can say, well, a human could fit inside one of those, so that's pretty good. And all I'd say is, yeah, it's pretty big. But here's the thing. If you're going to last three days inside a fish in the water, it still takes a miracle. It has to be a miraculous provision of God. So it's not enough for me to say, hey, here's the fish, and here's how the air could have got in or all the rest of it. I don't know. 
I've got no idea. And the Bible doesn't choose to tell me. It says God saved him and put him in the belly of a fish. And I think it's really important that we don't go beyond what God says. And so I've got a beautiful kid's Bible at home, which has Jonah sitting up in the, in the rib cage of a whale with a little light on, and he's just sitting in there praying quietly. I'm like, I, I think it would have been a slippery, stinky, constrictive, disastrous mess. I think that's the reality. Wouldn't have been very comfortable at all. Would have been terrifying. But the Bible speaks in a way that tells me that it happened. Can I remind you before I do this next bit, we're going to have Q&A at the end of this, so you're allowed to ask questions. If you have a question as we go through, write it down and we'll come back to it. Here's the thing. Remember, what was Jonah doing? He was trying to run away from God. He wanted to get to Tarshish, which would be far enough away from God, but I think it's hugely ironic that when he's swallowed by a fish under the water, he believes that his prayer is going to be heard by God. Isn't that incredible? I'm under the water. I'm in the belly of a fish, and yes, God, yes, I know I've got you on the phone. Of course you're listening to it's amazing, isn't it? When, it? when push comes to shove, Jonah believes God will never leave him, will always be accessible to him, will always listen to his prayer. I think that's extraordinary. Underwater, in a fish, God has prayer reception. That's good to know. Secondly, Jonah felt that he had gone to the ends, to the ends of the earth, to the roots of the mountains, it says in verse 6, I sank down, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. I want to encourage you tonight that no matter how hard it is, no matter how deep you sink, no matter how dark it gets, you are not beyond the saving hand of God. You are not beyond the saving hand of God. Jonah was convinced that there was no hope for him, that in the ocean he would die. But God miraculously provided salvation for him. That's encouraging for you and I. Jonah is uh, so saved that he has an opportunity to gloat inside the fish. Did you note this? Chapter 2, verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What was Jonah doing? He was running away from the living God. Now saved in the belly of a fish underwater, Jonah turns his mind to God and says, God, those who worship idols turn away from your love. I think that's quite extraordinary. It's true, but it's not very helpful, I don't think, for Jonah to say that. Jonah, you were running away from God's command and his love, but well done. Idol worshippers do that as well. The fourth thing I want us to observe from chapter, uh, chapter, four, uh, chapter 2 is just how in command God is. Can you see how in charge God is? And God commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I think the the fish could have got sick of Jonah, quite literally, throwing him up at any point, couldn't it? I have a very sore tummy. I've just swallowed a man, and I want to throw him up now. No, no, no. I'm going to keep him in my belly. The fish is going to track its way back to Israel. It's going to find a beach in Israel as it flops up on the beach. Because here's the thing. He could die inside its stomach on the beach, couldn't he? I don't know if you've thought about these things. I think about things. I'm weird. But here's the thing. Imagine the whale, the fish, up on the beach, bang, and then it just dies on the beach with him wrapped in a sausage. Are you with me? It's horrible, isn't it? Wonderfully, the fish, beach, vomit, here he comes, he's out, and then the fish dies. Pretty good, God. Love it. So God is in charge all the way through this story. I want to just take a little moment to reflect. We say uh, 
If you save me, God, then I'll, I don't know what you vowed to God. But here's the thought. Some of those might have been incredibly stupid. Can I say that? You might have said some really dumb things to God. But some of you might have made vows. And I want to say to you, what have you vowed to God that you need to keep? In desperation, what did you vow to God? God, if you save me, then I'll... What did you vow to God that you actually need to keep? You might want to think about that. Uh, Does anyone know who this guy here is? Someone said this morning, oh, his name's on the desk. That would have been helpful, wouldn't it? Does anyone know what his former job was? Yes? Former director of the FBI. Why is he on the desk here? Because he lost his job and he's testifying against the President of the United States who sacked him. Now, that's a power play, right? Everything that's happening at this table is scary, all right, in front of a Senate inquiry. I love, though, I think this is just such a dangerous situation. I've said up there, what would you do if you had nothing to lose? If you're James Comey, the, director of the former director of the FBI, and you've been sacked, and you think you've got evidence against the President of the United States, I'm saying you are deadly dangerous. You are deadly dangerous because you've got nothing to lose. You've lost your job, right? And, the, and the, the president is accusing you of being a liar. So what have you got to lose? Nothing. Now, I say people who've got nothing to lose are very, very dangerous. They're also full of conviction, I think. Have a listen to Jonah. Look what Jonah did with his new conviction. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 3. Jonah began going to the, a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah was a made man after he came out of the fish. He was so convicted, he said, I'm all in. I'm going straight to Nineveh, and I'm going to start doing what you told me to, God. Nineveh was a pretty impressive city. Does anyone remember how big it was, how many people it had in it? 120,000. If you were here this morning, you can't answer this. How many cities in Australia today have more people in them than Nineveh? You're saying six, Peter? Seven, a bit, bit bigger than that. Anyone got a guess? 20? Here's the thing. Apparently there are only 15 cities in Australia today that are bigger than Nineveh was then. Isn't that amazing? It was a really significant city. It was probably one of the largest cities in the world at that time. It was with the most powerful empire of that time. And Jonah is charged to go to it and to proclaim its destruction. So have a look in 3.3. Jonah obeyed the, obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Take two. Jonah, do you want to go to Nineveh? Wipe the, wipe, wipe the fish sick off you and get walking, son. Go to Nineveh. And it says, Jonah obeyed Nineveh, obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. Indeed, it was a very large city. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, are you ready for his message? It's a message of love and hope. You ready? I'm going to read it out to you. Message of love and hope. Here we go. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Did we lose something? Is that a nice message? It's a terrible message, isn't it? You've got 40 days. The clock starts now. And then God is going to come and bring some Sodom and Gomorrah to this postcode. Get with the program. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is not a nice message, is it? So what do we expect will happen? 
Well, the meanest people in the world will get one of their long sticks and the smelly prophet from Israel, we're going to put up as a hood ornament at the front gate. That's what we'd expect to happen, wouldn't we? 40 more days and you guys are going down. I reckon Jonah enjoyed it, by the way. Seriously, I think that's part of the story. I reckon Jonah went, well, God, if I've got to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell him, you're going down. You are going down. 40 more days, you're going down. You're going to meet the God of the universe, okay? You are going down. I reckon Jonah was into it. He was into the message. He was saying, you're going. So what do we expect would happen? We expect this would be a disaster, but I want you to see something extraordinary happens. Have a look with me at, uh, at verse 6. Oh, verse 5, actually. The Ninevites believed God. What? A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is totally unexpected. Where does the king rule from? From the throne. What is the first thing the king does when he hears this message? He comes down from his throne, takes off his royal finery, and puts on what? Has anyone got some sackcloth at home? Kids, it's the jumper that your granny knitted for you. You know the one with the really itchy wool? That's it. That's the sackcloth. Okay. It's, it's the worst material. It's not designed for clothing. So when it says they put on sackcloth, it means they got a sack and put it on them. And then they put on dust and ashes, which is saying, I am but dirt. I am dirt. And I'm wearing something that's only covering me for modesty and in fact is terribly annoying. That's what they did. And here's what God did in response to what they did. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And we go, how do I feel about that? We could say, isn't God amazing? Praise God. Or we could say, isn't that annoying? How come he didn't wipe out these evil, nasty people? And so we're kind of a bit, we're a bit torn. We don't know what to feel at this point. What, what I want to show you, his finery and finery for the king of Nineveh would have been wrapped up in pride. And here's, here's what it looks like to be in sackcloth and ashes. That's a pretty awesome picture, isn't it? to be covered in dirt and covered in sack. And it's humility without presumption. He says, who knows, in verse 9, God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger, so we will not perish. He doesn't even think, I'm sure God will answer. He just says, this is what we need to do. We're wrong. We're in big trouble. What would you do if you've got nothing to lose? Jonah followed God to the ends of the earth. What would you do if you're the king of Nineveh and you knew that you were about to be destroyed? You'd repent. What I want to ask you this morning, uh, this evening, um, if you're here and you haven't made Jesus your king yet, I want to ask, will we humble ourselves to be saved? Will we be like the king and get down from the throne and cover ourselves in ashes and say, God, you need to save me? If you're a Christian here today, I want to ask this question. Will we say the hard things to see people saved? You see, if the message is all love and a better life, 
Look, you should, you should add Jesus into the list of things that you have as hobbies. He's pretty cool. Jesus is kind of cool. And it'll be nicer for you. Actually, it'll be a little bit less nice because you'll lose your Sunday morning sleep in. But they're nice people at church. Join them. They're nice. It'll be nice for you. Your kids might learn some morals. Or you can say you're a sinner and the only hope of eternal salvation is repentance and the God who loves you will forgive you because his son died brutally on the cross for you. Well, we say the hard things so that people will call out for a saviour rather than add in a moral assistant. Uh, Does anyone like coffee here? Okay, very good. I see two hands. Seriously, the rest of you don't really. That's great. I don't like it. When people have a coffee, here's what we do. Sit down in the coffee shop and what do you do? You solve the problems of the world. Yes? Over a coffee, all the problems of the world can be solved. Hey, look, if I was President Trump right now, and look, I I think he's doing a pretty poor job in Syria. I think he should da-da-da-da-da. Right? All the problems of the world solved. Until you actually find yourself. um, Does anyone here love the West Wing? Oh, I see that hand. Great. The rest of you now have something to add to your list of things you should watch. The West Wing. Great program. Anyway, The West Wing is a show about what it looks like to be the President of the United States from inside the White House, from inside the Oval Office. And here's the thing. Outside, it looks like all the decisions are easy. Inside, every single problem is hard. Every problem is hard. I think we often look at God from the coffee shop. And we say, God, why can't... You can't let this happen, God. You can't let this happen to me. You can't let this happen to my friend. God, if I was you, I would make sure that I. God, you shouldn't. And I think we're coffee shopping God. We actually don't want the job, really. We don't really want the job because it would be massively complicated, but we're really happy to judge the judge and tell him when he's wrong. I think that's exactly what Jonah does here. Oh, this is his vine. Uh, that grew up over him. They think it's called the castor oil plant. That is your bonus piece of information for this. Have a look with me in chapter 4, verse (laughs) 1. What did Jonah think about God's wonderful, gracious salvation? Have a look at 4.1. But to Jonah, this seemed to be very wrong, and he became angry. Jonah goes, God, you got a loco. This is unacceptable, God. What were you thinking? How could you save this mob? Jonah is angry at God's mercy, and he does something truly unforgivable, I think. In 4.2-3, we see him turn God's name into an accusation. Hey, God, I knew you were going to save these guys. They deserve to go down. I was really enjoying telling them off. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that about you, that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. Isn't that extraordinary? Jonah actually says to God, look, God, it's your fault. I I was running away because I knew you'd be merciful to these guys and I didn't want that to happen. Boom, yeah. He says to God, I hate you for who you are. You need to press the smite button right now. These guys are going to get wiped off the face of the planet and I hold you responsible for not doing it. So God says, well, I'm going to take you. You want to be a child about this? I'm going to take you to childland. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. 
Jonah was sitting outside. It's funny, isn't it? Jonah goes outside the city, it says, and he was sitting down watching the city. Why was he watching the city? He was looking for the mushroom cloud to come up. Seriously. Bring on the, 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 the sulfur, the burning sulfur. and the, I want to, I'm waiting. But it's hot out there, and so God provides a vine that grows over him, provides shade. And then God provides a, uh, a worm, and, uh, and the vine gets eaten, and it dies. And God says to him, Jonah, are you worried about the vine? He says, I am so angry about the vine, I could die. Do you think he's a petulant child at all? Anyway, God says, well, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. You had nothing to do with it, Jonah. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The punchline of this whole book is to say, you don't care about the people I made in the way I do. You want to judge me? Find my heart. My heart is to show mercy and compassion. And you failed the test. God, you can't let this happen. Is us judging God. And what I want to ask you tonight is, who have we decided that God shouldn't save? Who have we got on our list of people that we say, God, I would be angry with you if you showed grace and mercy to them? It's pretty challenging, isn't it? Because God won't give us a vine, but he's told us in Jonah what it looks like. You see, God has this plan, the sign of Jonah. And uh, in Matthew 12, in Matthew 12, we see God interacting with the history that is Jonah. And Jesus comes along and the Pharisees are uh, riling Jesus up and they put him under pressure and they say, Jesus, we want you to do something special. In uh, chapter 12, verse 38, he says this. It's on page 978. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Here's what's going on. What's the sign of Jonah? The sign is that just as Jonah was in a fish, so the Son of Man will be in the earth. What's it speaking about? Jesus' resurrection. The sign that will be given will not be a massive miracle in the sky. The miracle will be that one man the king of the universe will be raised from the dead. That's the first part of the sign. The second part of the sign is to say, hey guys, you should repent at my preaching and there's going to be some dust-covered Gentiles from Nineveh who are going to stand next to you on the final day, O chosen people of Israel, and say, hey guys, why didn't you get with the program? Gentiles will condemn unfaithful Israel because they got the message and repented. The third part of the sign is that Gentiles accepted Jonah. Israel rejected Jesus. That is not a good move. The Gentiles accepted a prophet from another country. God's own people would not receive his precious king, and they crucified him. The sign that they will get is that that king they kill will come back to life. Well, we're talking about God on mission, and we see that God's mission will be specific. He's still interested in Israel, but we get this story tonight, and we see that God's plan is global. It includes the most wicked city in the whole world. 
He will save it. He will include the Gentiles in his plan. And I want us to finish with this. The Lord God said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God sent Jonah to save the Ninevites. Will we have concern for our great city? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you have indeed entrusted the message of new life to us here in Oran Park. I pray, Lord, that we would not need to be swallowed by fish, to be spat out, to be covered with a vine, to be scorched by the sun. But, Father, indeed, you'd humble us. You would help us to hear your call, that we would be obedient and that we would give the message of new life joyfully and persistently so that many would be saved in this great city. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. There we go. There's Jonah. Uh, Opportunity for questions. Do you have any questions tonight? Uh, Yes. Great, yeah, yeah. Why did they believe Jonah? Um, So why did the Ninevites believe Jonah? I think that the Ninevites believed Jonah because God was merciful. The end. Yeah, I think it was God's salvation. I think God's plan was always to save Nineveh and he needed a, a prophet to go there and he persisted with Jonah, including saving him from his own death in order to make sure that he could save Nineveh. Salvation is always God's work. It is always by grace. And so when we say, why did it work? I want to say to you, it was because God was in it from beginning to end, because he chose to save them. More than that, I do think God chose a messenger who would say exactly what he wanted. So it could have been, look, it might be an awkward time for you, Nineveh. I'd like to do some um, rebuilding projects with you to kind of align your morals a little bit more. He just says exactly what God said. He said, look, you're going down and it's going to be 40 days and you'll be destroyed. And because they heard, they repented, because they heard the reality of God's judgment coming. That'd be my answer. Yeah, thank you. Someone else, another question. Yes, Kathy. I love that story. So Kathy's question is, why are the animals in this story? Kathy, it is, it is by far the most interesting detail for me in the whole thing, and I have no information on it whatsoever. So it says, the city has 120,000 people and a few animals, and when the king proclaims a fast, he says, and the animals can't, eat it. It is absolutely fascinating to me at every level. I have no information whatsoever. Um, because it seems to me in other places that uh, the animals don't have a soul that will be able to be saved into glory. So what is going on there? I think the idea is their connection with animals is probably tied up with some of their religion. And so the idea was we're, gonna, we're, we're all going to repent at every level of society. So you can't even maintain the animals as kind of a side part of your worship. Everything is going to turn its eye towards this God. But Kathy, it's a great question, and I honestly don't know. It's fantastic. I'm with you. What the? That's the technical answer, I think. Okay, yeah, someone else. Another question. Yes. So the question is, do you think, you mentioned something about the hard things. Are we, as Western Christians, watering down the message? Uh, Here's the answer to that. Yes. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favourite preachers of all time, he said that people will never cry out for a saviour until they know that they need one. People will never cry out for a saviour until they know that they need one. This is so important for me. So while I tell people that you can add Jesus into your life for some sort of therapeutic benefit, okay, I don't need to change my life, and why would I bother? If I tell you that unless you repent and get right with the God of the universe, you are going to be judged for your wickedness and sent away from him forever to hell, is what Jesus says. Why would I, why would I add Jesus in? Why, why would I bother? And so I think we're afraid of hell. Not that we're afraid of hell. We're afraid of telling people about hell. Here's, you know, this is a bonus prize. Does anyone know? Who speaks about hell the most in the Bible? Anyone know? So call it out. Jesus is the answer. Why does Jesus speak about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? I'm sorry? Because he knows about it? Yep. Here's the other thing. What's Jesus going to do? Sorry? Uh, He's going to be the judge, absolutely. But before he's the judge, what is he? Uh, He's going to go there as the saviour. Here's the thing. I think this is just so important. Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to go there. And he will die. He himself will die that you don't need to go there. And he will offer you full and free forgiveness if you'll take him on board. So, yeah, what's the story? Um, I, think, I think that the cross is just an awkward disaster if sin isn't a real deal. If, if hell is a reality and my rebellion will separate me from God forever, then that makes sense of the Son of God dying on this cross, yeah? Not this one, but the cross. Otherwise, otherwise, why? It's such an overkill for why don't you just let this slide, God? So here's the reality. I think that we terrible at presenting the reality of what's before people eternally, spiritually. That does not mean your opening gambit has to be you're going to hell in this 40 days and it's starting to count down. That's not what I mean at all. We talk about connect, care, communicate, commit. I want us to lovingly speak the message. But if you never speak the message, I want to say no one will ever be saved. Hey, we're going to, you said as a segue, there are lots more questions, I'm sure. Catch me over supper.